Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with the people doing interesting things in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. Today, my guest is Dr. Lori Ryan. Dr. Ryan is a pathologist and the host of another podcast called Scope MD. Today on the show, we'll talk about Dr. Ryan's background and how she got into pathology. We'll talk about her experience in public health, and we'll talk quite a bit about her podcast, Scope MD. Okay, here's Dr. Lori Ryan. Uh, Dr. Lori Ryan, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks, Dennis. It's great to connect with you. Yes, I agree. You're actually the host of your own podcast, which is called Scope MD. And uh, we're going to talk quite a bit about that a little bit later on. But I wanted to start just with you first. So let's let's kind of back up a bit. How did you become interested in pathology? Well, I would say it's a bit of a wandering um, story. Okay. Uh, I actually, after I graduated from college, went and got my master's in public health and epidemiology. Uh, and then uh, after getting that, I decided to go to medical school. So really my first interest was public health. And entering the public health arena, I realized I probably either needed to get a PhD or an MD in order to get the leadership position that I was interested in at that time, mm -hmm. and decided to go the MD route. And actually started in internal medicine and then switched to pathology. Uh, so I do have some internal medicine background. Uh, so like I said, a bit of a wandering road, but I think all of those prior experiences have actually really helped me in my career as a pathologist in the sense that I have some understanding in terms of, for example, what internal medicine doctors are looking for in their reports, and also some sense of, you know, how the public health community actually works with laboratories. Mm -hmm. Okay. What made you switch from internal medicine? Did you just find you like pathology better or was there something else? Well, actually, I think the specialties are somewhat similar in the sense that you're really looking at trying to diagnose an issue for a patient. What mm -hmm. I found that I didn't enjoy as much is managing that condition once you found out what it was. So what I really love about pathology is the diagnostics and finding out you know, what is the diagnosis for the patient, really creating a succinct report for that patient um, so that the care team can do what they need to do to help that patient. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, you mentioned you uh, you have a master's in public health and epidemiology. Can we talk a little bit about that? Like, what what did you intend to do at at that time with that degree, and what were some of your experiences in that area? Yeah, so I really didn't know public health existed honestly until uh, a summer in my college career. I was a double biology and Spanish major, and there was a requirement to do study abroad. Because I was a biology major, you know, it was hard to do study abroad during the regular semester. So I did it over a summer, and it was a specific program looking at health in the Dominican Republic. So it was a three-month opportunity, and we actually had a lot of experience spending time with epidemiologists in the Dominican Republic. And I learned about challenges in terms of um, maternal and child health, nutrition, 
things that weren't really on my radar as a college student. Mm-hmm. And that was um, the summer before my senior year. And it just struck me how interesting the work was. And my original plan was to go straight to medical school, but I actually detoured and applied for public health program, uh, did that. And actually, as a public health student, worked at the Minnesota Department of Health. And that was the time where Dr. Mike Olsterholm had just left. And I was just really struck by his leadership and wanted to be the next Dr. Olsterholm, to be honest. And my family had no idea who I was talking about at the time. But I just love that idea of helping people from a population standpoint. And again, in order to fulfill my interest in that, it required an advanced degree. So again, you know, was I going to go the PhD route or the MD route? Ended up going the MD route and the career path over that period of time changed. So now I'm uh, a pathologist. While you were in the Dominican Republic, like what was what was sort of your day-to-day kind of routine there? Were you involved in some kind of project, or how did, how did that go? Well, the the program was had multiple facets, so we toured a lot of different healthcare institutions in the Dominican Republic to get a sense of the tiered healthcare system there. So they at that time had um, private hospitals, military-based hospitals, and public. And so we spent a lot of time touring those. There was also a language component to to learn Spanish more fluently. But we did actually have a project, too. And um, my project was actually looking um, at different blood bank setups in these different tiered hospital settings. So it was a small project, but mostly the idea of the program was to really introduce college students to healthcare systems public health, and also um, improve our uh, Spanish-speaking ability. Okay. That, that seems to have been very, very effective for you. You, you mentioned the leadership role you were, you were looking to get into in the Minnesota Department of Health, and it seems like those type of roles have been very important to you throughout your career. Did you end up in that role in the Department of Health? No. So, like I said, my career path wandered a bit. So I went to medical school, uh, did residency and uh, fellowship in pathology and um, now work as a pathologist. So that Mm -hmm. um, original plan of maybe someday being a state epidemiologist didn't pan out. uh, And instead, I'm in in the in the world of pathology. Right. Okay, But you do have quite a few uh, leadership roles in in pathology and you're involved in quite a few committees and things like that. I wonder, can we talk about a few of those? Sure. Uh, there, there was one I saw, you're part of the, uh, the CAP, the IHC committee. Can, can you talk about that? What is that and what does that committee do? Yeah, so this is, I'm a relatively new member of the IHC uh, College of American Pathology Committee. And uh, we have multiple facets to our work. We do a lot of work with the IHC proficiency testing uh, surveys. So each of us have a survey that we're responsible for. But uh, we're also available as a resource if pathologists have questions that are sent to the CAP in terms of immunohistochemical questions. And some of those come through CAP today. So those Q&A columns, for example. Oh, sure. 
Yeah. So um, that our committee, those sorts of questions come to our committee and we help answer those. In the past, committee members, I haven't done this yet, but committee members have written uh, articles and archives talking about immune histochemical practices. We meet multiple times during the year to talk about uh, survey work and other potential surveys we might bring up as the field of immune histochemistry has now incorporated uh, more um, prognostic markers, uh, such as mm -hmm. pdl one Is there any work with, um, you know, like new emerging stains, things like that, validating those kinds of things? Uh, the committee doesn't um, necessarily do that work per se. It's more looking at um, should we be adding additional immunohistochemical stains for survey purposes. So for example, I mentioned PDL one and the mm -hmm. work that's being done in that arena or key 67 by image analysis. So those are the sorts of emerging uh, uses for immunohistochemical stains that we're looking at in terms of providing uh, PT survey products for um, the customers of CAP. Okay. I understand. Another role I wanted to talk about, you're part of the Breath of Hope Lung Foundation. And it, that's there in Minnesota, right? Yeah. So a Breath of Hope Lung Foundation is uh, a foundation that was actually created in 2007 by a small group of lung cancer patients and their uh, support group nurse. And it has really grown over the years. I was on the board of directors um, a few years ago and was really um, excited to be a part of the organization as a board member during that time because it really grew from a local organization to really an organization with a national presence. And one of the, we did a lot. Um, so A Breath of Hope as a three-tiered approach. It uh, supports research in the area of lung cancer. Um, it works to bring awareness to um, the fact that people get lung cancer, smokers and non-smokers. And it also uh, works to support patients and their families through support groups, um, other activities like driving patients to, to their different appointments. But one of the most exciting things that happened um, during my tenure there as a, a board member was we brought up the Animated Patient Guide to Lung Cancer, which is the only one available actually in the world for patients to provide information for patients about lung cancer. So it has videos, it has animation. It's a just a fantastic resource for lung cancer patients and their families. And it really grew out of feedback that we got from patients that when they got diagnosed with lung cancer, number one, they're scared. Number two, they have no idea where to go to get accurate information. And so this project was really a response to those concerns and those fears to give patients and their families accurate information in small segments that they can understand. So that resource is on a Breath of Hope, uh, a Breath of Hope's uh, webpage if people are interested. And actually, it's interesting because I work primarily as a cytopathologist and a lung pathologist, and I have people come into my office, and I can tell immediately that they're going to tell me a friend or a family member just got diagnosed with lung cancer. You can just kind of sense the vibe when a person yeah. comes into the office. 
And I have referred multiple people to that website and they've said how helpful it is to just go to a site where they can trust the information. It's easy to understand and it's in different formats depending on how people learn best. So just I'm really excited that resource is out for uh, patients and their families. Yeah, I, I will. Uh, I'll link that in the show notes to, to that uh, so everybody can see it. You know, I've heard from a few other people the the it's kind of the concept of I guess graphic medicine is the way I've heard it explained. Like it a more visual thing, like yeah. you're talking about with this animation, or like almost like cartoon drawings and, and things like that. So it it makes it easier for people to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because yeah. as you know, in medicine, we use a lot of jargon that people outside of mm -hmm. the world of medicine just don't understand or are intimidated by. So. Anything we can do to help patients understand their diagnosis and the options they have for treatment are only good things for for everyone, ultimately. So, Right, right. Do you have, through a breath of hope, do you have a lot of like direct contact with the patients or, or the, the public? Because that's another trend that I'm seeing also with pathologists are becoming more, um, have, have more direct contact with patients. Is that something that you're doing? Yeah, I've done a little bit of that. Um, they have asked me to talk at small gatherings, for example, talking about immunotherapy and PDL one. So I've I've done a little bit of that. Um, mm -hmm. They still tend to use more oncologists for those type of talks or settings, but I have been asked to do that on occasion. What what kind of feedback have you gotten from the organization, or has the organization gotten from the public as far as the effect that they're having um, on patients? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess I should step back and say I'm not on the board of directors anymore, so I don't have, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that data. But a breath of hope, Lung Foundation is well supported in the Twin Cities and nationally. They're seen as an advocate for lung cancer patients. Um, again, we, the organization, supports research. So if you're someone looking at a new funding source and you have an interest in lung cancer research, I would suggest you check the website out to see what projects have been supported in the past. Okay, and, and people can donate to to a project. And people can also, donate correct? to, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, we have a couple of run walk opportunities. Um, most of them are based in Minnesota. There is one in Fort Myers annually too. So, yeah, I encourage people to check out the website and see the good work. One of the areas, too, that they've provided funding for is projects related to lung cancer screening to help providers who are interested in providing that for patients, but for whatever reason might uh, be lacking the funding. So that's another opportunity uh, for funding if people are, are interested in uh, helping with projects related to lung cancer screening. Let's move on then to the the podcast. So your podcast, like I mentioned, it's called Scope MD. Um, yes. And it's been mm -hmm. out for it's been out for for a little while now. And you started it earlier this year. Um, yes. I, yeah, go. How did you uh, or how I guess and, and when did you come up with the idea for it? Like when did you decide? You know, I I need to start a podcast. Well, the idea really began in 2017. So it's been a bit in the making. Mm -hmm. And it really stemmed from the fact I love to listen to podcasts and I like to listen to podcasts for women leaders. And in really in 2017, 
the podcast that I were, was able to find for for women in leadership focused on women CEOs and venture capitalists, which are really interesting podcasts, but not exactly what I experience day to day as a healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. And so I got the idea. I'm like, man, someone someone should really do a podcast for women in healthcare. And I tried to find one, and I wasn't able to really find one. And then I started jotting down ideas. It's like, well, when somebody else creates this podcast, I'm going to email them these ideas because I think these are topics that we need to talk about. Right. And then life got in the way. Um, and fast forward to late 2019, I still couldn't find a podcast. Someone doing, I'm like, you know, I think I just need to do this. And what was interesting from 2017 to, and maybe you've noticed this to late 2019 is there's a lot more resources for people interested in starting a podcast. So in 2017, oh, yeah. it was really hard to figure out how does, how do you even publish a podcast? I mean, I spent a ton of time in 2017, just sort of, you know, like, how do these podcasters do this? And it wasn't very clear at that time, the setup, um, just what you need digitally in terms of how does the podcast get from my computer to somebody's iPhone wasn't very right. clear. But now, I mean, there's all these businesses that help you quickly and easily set up your podcast and will edit it for you. And so that's really changed in three years. So ultimately, mm-hmm. it really came from the fact that I couldn't find anyone else who was doing it. And the topics I thought were important enough that I I decided to do it and really view it as a way of giving back to the medical community in terms of when I look at people thinking about going to medical school medical students, residents, new faculty. I'm just like, you know, these are topics I wish I would have known about earlier on in my career in terms of how do you handle perfectionism or how do you network or how do you give feedback the right way? All these different topics that I've um, encountered in my medical career and, you know, how do you go about successfully managing and navigating those challenges? Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. Um, as far as starting a podcast, it was, you know, like for me, I, it was kind of the same thing. Like I wanted to, you know, get a, find a podcast where they interviewed people that were working in pathology or in the lab and about the things that they did And it. At the time I, I, there wasn't anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, there's so many, uh, different options for, starting a podcast, recording a podcast, distributing it, all those things. It Now there's, it's almost like there's too many and you have to narrow it down and sort of decide. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of swung the other way. Now there's, there's a lot of options that, that are almost uh, overwhelming too. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, but I found though, after I started at this podcast, uh, there were a few others that kind of came out at the same time with sort of similar focus. D- did you find that for yourself as well? Or do you still think yours is the only one that, you know, focuses on women in medicine? Well, you know, I don't know if you've experienced one thing I've learned about podcasting is just um, how you find specifically in on the Apple platforms, finding them and how they list them. And how you have to have a certain amount of an audience before you're listed. So there probably are podcasts out there that I don't know about because it can can be hard to find them. So I don't want to say I'm the only one. I'm, you know, 
there could be other ones. Um, but that's one challenge, I think, in terms of getting the word out about podcasts that might not have the audience level that makes it difficult to search for them. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, building the audience is, I've found, at least for, for me, that's been the, the hardest thing. Uh, letting people know that, that it exists. Right. Yeah. Because a lot of us who don't have a brand associated with us, it's, yeah, it's a challenge and a fun challenge, but it's a challenge to get the word out. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're from the very beginning, you wanted to focus on women in medicine. Like for me, my focus sort of evolved over time, but it sounds like you had it. That's what you wanted to do from the start. Why was that important to you? Yeah. So, well, again, it might be because I tend to listen to podcasts for women in general, mm -hmm. but, you know, um, one of the really great things about my job as a pathologist is I work at primarily at a tertiary care center where I'm really focused on cytopathology and lung cancer. But I also go to these um, smaller, more rural hospitals where I'm cutting my own frozens. I'm interacting with the lab staff. Oh, hey, there's a there's a heme tech who's not sure if this is a blast or not. Can you look at it? There's a physician in the ER who wants to talk about troponin ISTAT testing. And it, those two different work scenarios made me realize, wow, some of the challenges and opportunities I have as a pathologist, other providers are also dealing with issues similar to what I'm dealing with or have similar opportunities. For example, in these smaller settings, where I'm interacting with other physicians or a nurse before I do a bone marrow biopsy or a radiology tech before I go in for an FNA. Mm -hmm. Just all those interactions made me realize we're a lot more alike than we are different in terms of healthcare providers in general. And some of these overarching topics impact all of us. And I just really wanted to explore those. So uh, that's why I really wanted to do a podcast for women really in medicine. And what I mean by medicine is all of healthcare, because I think the challenges facing nurses, pharmacists, lab techs, physicians of any specialty are actually more similar than we than we think. So that's really, really the thesis of my podcast is we're really more alike than we are different. Okay. Okay. And that's, a, I think that's a great message. A few, a few of your episodes they deal with, and and this is another thing that interested me about your show is it's this is it, it's different than mine because you deal with some of the, I guess they're called interpersonal skills, and did you want to talk about these things and found someone who was an expert in it, or did you find the person and then realize they had this expertise and then talk about them? like do you know what I mean which which way did that sort of work. Yeah. The chicken versus the egg. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So really, I mean, all the topics that I've released so far have really organically occurred in the healthcare settings that I work. I mean, these are topics people are talking about. So really it's the topic has declared itself and I've tried my best to find an expert in the area to help highlight it, uh, provide strategies. If it's a challenge, to um, to deal with those issues, but also just as I interact and as I'm farther along in my career and meet more people, 
I've had the opportunity to learn really amazing stories about healthcare providers who have used circumstances in their life to benefit their patients. So it's kind of really, it's just topics as they arise in the work environment and trying to find, like I said, if it's a challenge, an expert who can help us navigate those or um, a healthcare provider who's really taken an innovative approach. And I will, I will interview that person. So it's, it's really a potpourri, I would say it's really kind of in the trenches of healthcare and as topics arise. Actually, I was just kind of looking through my episodes if you some of the more earlier episodes are really covid driven mm-hmm, as sure. topics topics arose quickly you know how do we navigate these many challenges that we didn't have 6 months ago so so right. again uh, really the topics and the episodes are based on you know what what's really happening in the work environment that i work in Sure, sure. And even the the COVID episodes that you've done, they weren't like, you know, this is what the disease is, and this is how it progresses and whatever they were, you know, it's coping strategies to to use during the pandemic, which is a, a little bit different, but equally important. Some of the other things I wanted to touch on a little bit, uh, you had an episode on networking, which I think, as you said, people are talking about, but I don't think they're talking about it enough. And your episode focused on networking when you're looking for a job. But do you think that that's a skill that you could use at other times as well? Yeah, you know, that episode, I did that episode because actually a lab tech came into my office about a year ago and basically asked me, how do I network to get to advance my career? What do I need to do to get to the next level of which I don't think I offered? any, anything of substance. I'm like, I have no idea how you network. You know, this is a great topic. I have no clue. So I reached out to a a business coach and just said, Hey, you know, can you talk about networking and what are things people should do and what are things people shouldn't do? And so really that was an organic episode of a, a lab tech coming in saying, I want to advance my career. Can you help me do it? I'm like, I would love to help you do it, but I don't know how to help you. Right. Yeah, that was a good one. There was another one on uh, giving and receiving feedback, which is also important. And I think a lot of people are not good at either side of that. And then most recently, uh, you had an episode about imposter syndrome, which I I really liked a lot. And that's another one that's not talked about enough. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, like I said, these are just topics that people... I hear people talking about, or I see people struggling with. And again, I try to match uh, someone with the expertise or the experience and interview them with the hope that, you know, ultimately that we can overcome these challenges with the goal of number one, providing excellent patient care, the best possible patient care that we can offer, but two, just to have, allow us to really have the career that we all are striving for. So, you know, feedback, as you mentioned, that I found that to be an incredibly um, challenging topic in terms of both me receiving it and mm-hmm. giving it. And right. so Dr. Bean really provided some great uh, advice in terms of how to manage and navigate both of those, not only with trainees, but also with your colleagues. So, yeah, right, I, right. I found her to just have a wealth of knowledge that I've incorporated into my practice that have 
been it's been really useful to use the tools that she that she suggested. Right. I you know I, the last couple of years now I've I've been working with residents, pathology residents, and yeah, the, the feedback thing. I, I noticed that you know it, part of what they're supposed to be learning during the residency is how to I, I think how, how to interact with you know other lab personnel as well and uh, sometimes giving and receiving feedback there that's an important part yeah. of it and so it, it's it's helpful for them to learn how to do that too you know on top of the million other things they have to learn right yeah i mean if we don't do it well ultimately there's a risk that our patients we could be providing right. suboptimal patient care and so i think it like dr bean said if we can focus on keeping it on patient care and providing excellent patient care then a lot of these things become a lot easier to deal with right like you know we're, we're you know you have to realize we're all on the same team and, and like you said earlier right. we're more alike than we are different Actually, can we can we touch on the imposter syndrome episode as well? Sure, that, of course. That was my favorite. Yeah. For people for people to, who don't know what what is imposter syndrome. Well, again, I'm not an expert, but right. bottom line, the imposter syndrome is the sense that you um, are acting, the sense that you feel like a fraud, that you um, they don't have the expertise in your area that there's no way you're going to be able to get it and that hopefully no one will ever realize that you're a fraud that you think you are. So it's really this mindset of not being able to do something, even though you are able to do it. And in that episode that I released, you know, Sue Hawks talks about how it's normal for most people to have this at some point in their life. And just, just hearing that, wow, other people struggle with this too, at least for me, was liberating. It's like, wow, yeah. I'm not the only one that sometimes feels like a fraud in right. healthcare. So, yeah, I think everybody who, well, probably most everybody who has a little touch of imposter syndrome at times. And I think you always do feel like you're the only one that ever feels that way. And so, it, it, yeah, it was nice to hear that that's not the case and that there are so many other people. And from what I've read, anyways, it seems like the people that are. I don't want to say high performers, but I can't think of a better term, but those are the ones that are affected by imposter syndrome the most. Would you, do you think yeah, that's true? High, yeah. High achieving people, which is a lot of people in healthcare, right? I mean, mm -hmm. um, are at risk or have experienced imposter syndrome and or perfectionism. I think they tend to run parallel. They're a little bit different, but sure, sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so I don't think it's unique to physicians. I think it's, it extends more broadly to other, uh, uh, professionals in healthcare. Sure, sure. It, it sounds like you've learned quite a bit from uh, the, the guests that you've had on your on your podcast so far. Were, were there ever times where you learned something that maybe you didn't didn't expect, or you thought you knew about a topic and came to find out you you didn't really? Well, I think yes, probably every episode to some degree. To be mm -hmm. honest. Um, the episode on telemedicine was really interesting because that was an area as a pathologist. I mean, I don't actually, we do um, digital pathology, but telemedicine itself uh, was a topic actually I personally wasn't necessarily going to be using a lot as a pathologist. But this idea of providing healthcare remotely with the ultimate potential goal of maybe making healthcare 
less provider centric and more patient centric was really interesting to me yeah. in the sense that we can provide some, you know, some aspects of healthcare remotely and not require a patient to come some, come to a clinic or a hospital it was really exciting and maybe a silver lining in the COVID epidemic in terms of pushing regulations to allow more telemedicine to occur. So that's an area that I knew very little about, but I knew that it was rapidly changing. And Dr. Elmuto did, a, I think, a great job just outlining how telemedicine has evolved quickly, what the current state is, and, and what the future of it might look like. Sure, sure. And that, that was another timely episode as, as well. The, the time that you released it, it was when all of the telemedicine stuff was really sort of ramping up. Yeah, I was just really curious. It's like, why hadn't this happened before? You know, what, what, and a lot of it's regulation based, but it was just really eye opening to me that the technology has been there, yeah. but the regulations did not allow it to occur, which I just found really fascinating in this, as part of this COVID epidemic, how things have moved quicker in medicine. Right, right. And that, I, I feel like that's a good thing. I mean, if there's any, anything good that could come out of a, pandemic which sounds weird to say but something like this i think i think is i know i've talked to a few people who've had kind of virtual appointments with their doctors and they really enjoyed them they felt like they were given more uh more attention Mm -hmm. because no there there were no other distractions or something like that so yeah so i think i'm excited to see where it goes i think it's a great I think the technology is great. I think the opportunities, it will be interesting to see how it evolves um, now that the regulations, at least for this point in time, have been eased. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Totally agree. Do you ever have trouble finding, like you, you come up with a topic, you ever have trouble finding uh, someone, you know, like you mentioned, finding an expert, you ever, ever have trouble finding one or get th- getting them to agree to be interviewed? Well, I think probably all podcasters um, struggle with that if it's an interview-based podcast. Um, but to be honest, I just have reached out to potential interviewees, explained, you know, here's my podcast, here's what I'm trying to accomplish, would you be interested? And I wasn't quite sure at the beginning if people would say yes, but the majority have. Um, maybe part of the challenge is finding who to ask. Mm-hmm. Um and I've really worked my network in terms of asking other professionals in healthcare, hey, do you know somebody, for example, who's an expert in telemedicine, right? I mean, that's right. not somebody I interact with every day. So, right. um, yeah. And, you know, like I said, just going back, the whole purpose of this was to try to give back to the healthcare community. But like any sort of gift that you give. I often feel like I receive more than the person who gets the gift. I mean, I've met so many interesting people. And learned a ton that I otherwise would have never learned about a variety of different topics that I've definitely honestly gotten, I think, more out of it personally than I ever would have hoped to or expected to. So it's it's been a really fun project. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. I can I can very much relate to that. And uh, yeah, about the the working your network part, too, like I've had people that I've had that I've interviewed then would suggest other people that I could interview and it sort of branches out like that. So it's really kind of, it, it's fun to be a part of it. And it's sort of interesting to look at it from the outside and watch it develop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's been fun. 
What are your plans for Scope MD for, for the future? Do you have other episodes lined up ready to go? I do, yeah. So one thing about uh, this spring, probably other laboratories had this experience too in terms of their surgical volumes is we we had a dip, oh, yeah. which allowed me <laughs> to do some interviews on the side that I otherwise might not have been able to do. So I really tried to maximize that time and do a variety of different uh, interviews. And so, yeah, um, on a variety of different uh, topics, ranging from how do we provide excellent care and take care of ourselves to um, I'm also interested in the, the history of women in medicine in general. So there'll be a topic coming or a episode coming out on that. And also, um, you know, just as again, just trying to keep a sense of the pulse of the daily activities, too, and and uh, create podcast material based on, again, innovations, current challenges barriers as they arise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I know your, your podcast is for women in medicine, but I have to say I've, I've been getting a lot of it out of it myself. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I should say, so I, I should say, obviously it's, it's open to everyone. I mean, I uh, like, you know, I'm a woman, so, and I only know my experience and therefore I, I, uh, created a podcast for women in medicine. But as you noted, a lot of these topics are applicable to all healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything else you wanted to mention be before we wrap up? It's an interesting time in medicine. And I think just this idea of us all working together is so critical for our patients right now. There's a lot of stressors that we're all facing that a year ago, we never would have thought we'd be wearing masks. We'd have yeah. volatility in our volumes, you know, just things that never would have crossed my mind a year ago and how important it is to just really support each other right now and acknowledge challenges, try to work around them, celebrate innovation and successes because, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a challenging time in healthcare right now. Yeah, I totally agree. That's, that's a, that's a great message. Uh, Dr. Ryan, thank you very much for being here. This, this has been a very interesting. Yeah, thank you so much. Great big thanks to Dr. Lori Ryan. Now, if you want to find links to all of the things we talked about today, go to the website and look at the show notes. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. Go and subscribe to ScopeMD and leave Dr. Ryan a rating and review. I know she'll appreciate it. And then share this episode with someone you know. Maybe you know a woman in medicine who would appreciate listening to this. So share the show, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.